I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 79, we read Uprooted by Gracie Olmstead, published in 2021. But before we get into that, let's, let's talk about another podcast. Conservative ideas are no longer welcome on most college campuses, or anywhere for that matter. If you're a conservative college student or professor, then you already know what I'm talking about. If you're hungry for great conservative ideas, look no further. Check out the Conservative Conversations with ISI podcast today. Presented by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, this podcast is a series of in-depth conversations with leading thinkers of the most important issues facing conservatism. Join Johnny Burka and James Davenport to dig into the world of conservative ideas with thinkers like William F. Buckley Jr., Richard Weaver, Yuval Levin, Ross Douthat, and more. To listen, go to isi.org slash podcast or any of your favorite podcast platforms. So for Uprooted, we are joined today by Gracie Olmsted. Grace is a journalist who focuses on farming, localism, and, and family. Her writings been published in the American Conservative, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. A native of rural Idaho, she now lives outside Washington, D.C. with her husband and three children. Thanks for joining us, Grace. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'll just throw it over to you to get started. What's the uh, summary, I guess, of the book and, and you know, why did you write it? Well, the book is about the farming community where I grew up in Idaho as a young person. I lived in Fruitland, Idaho, Fruitland, named for its orchards, but my family uh, and its farming enterprises were located primarily in the town of Emmett for multiple generations. And um, I left Idaho behind in order to go to college out here in Northern Virginia, where I still currently live. And once I had moved across the country, I began to feel a lot of homesickness and love for the place that I had left behind. And over time began to ask myself these questions surrounding what I might owe to the place and the people that had raised me. And um, to ask questions about interdependence and indebtedness that in many ways I was inspired to begin thinking about by thinkers like Edmund Burke and Wendell Berry and Robert Nisbet and others uh, who were really explaining to me for the very first time what the goodness I saw and felt as a young person in my home community uh, stemmed from and why it mattered. And so this book considers both the historical um, health of this community, how it's deteriorated and struggled in more recent years. And since it is primarily a farming community, looking at that particular aspect of its health and how um, far farming and family farming in that area has just continued to struggle and is, is in many ways um, uh, facing a very difficult and precarious future. So, so this book to, seems to me is a very sort of wistful and nostalgic look at, at a certain way of life. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, what it was like growing up on a farm, or you, you have a lot of different stories of 30 or 40 different people, some in Idaho, some in, from other states. But what is it about farming that's special in your mind? I mean, I feel like what's, what I really take from your book is you feel like that's a, 
a very special way of life that should be preserved. What is it that you think is special about it? Well, the farms are essential for um, our ability to feed ourselves as a country. And so there's a very practical aspect of their importance and their health, um, both in terms of what they're growing, the animals being raised on that land, and then the health of the land itself and the water that flows through it um, are just, I would argue, very vital aspects of our own health as humans in a placed landscape in, in our various um, reaches of the globe where we might live. Now, as to why it matters, particularly for me in this local context, I think um, I was the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of, of farmers. My father was not a farmer, um, but the farm was very much a part of our life growing up. And in many ways, it was part of our sustenance because the food that my grandfather and great-grandfather raised ended up on our, our dinner table. Oftentimes, the food that they were growing on their farm, they would then give to us for free. And um, so there was this way in which I owed much of my sustenance, uh, literal as well as I would argue um, spiritual and familial, because there was this overarching set of values surrounding the farm that were just a part of my life as a young person. And so I saw how living in a farm community um, taught you a lot about the seasons. It gave you this very strong and tangible sense of connection with the land itself and with the community surrounding that land that worked that land. And um, the farm community in which I grew up had a set of values surrounding this idea of a gift economy in which indebtedness, generosity, and responsibility for one another was really built into the fabric of our towns and our neighborhoods and our life. And so that taught me particular lessons about being a human and what it means to live with other humans in a way that is virtuous, that were incredibly valuable. And even as the farms have struggled, I've noticed that many of those values have continued on in various forms, although I would argue um, the more young people leave and these communities grow fractured or continue to gray as they lose younger inhabitants, I think I think those values do struggle to be passed on. I think that um, that sort of cycle of of uh, tradition and, and habit, living with the seasons, that sort of thing, does appeal to a lot of people. I think it's at, kind of at the root of what we are as humans, even though only a small percentage of people live and work on farms anymore. Mm -hmm. I think. So much of human history is grounded in agriculture, and and the title of your book itself too is. I mean, we talk about somebody, something, or somebody being rooted, and it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that's so deep we don't even really think of it as a metaphor. You know, we don't. It goes back to whatever ancestral people came up with the idea that hey, you know, we have spiritual roots in the way the plants have roots. That's so obvious to us in our language that we don't even think about it as oh, I'm making a comparison to plant life and the land. But it, it's so deep, and I think that's, um, I mean, it kind of is a counterpoint to a lot of the more radically individualist strains of, of thinking, both on, mostly on the right, but also on the left, you know, that, that sort of man emerged from nature and as an individual and formed communities to protect rights. And there's something to that, but I think when you talk about the way that people relate to each other and when people got to a new land, how they, how they formed it, how they worked together to make it. It shows that there's something in us, I think, that's that's beyond that 
that radical individualism. It also has that that need for community and roots. Mm. Yeah, one thing Wendell Berry talks about a lot is this idea of membership, um, that we are members of a place. And, and therefore, if you think about a human body, uh, we're embedded in it in a way that's that's deeper than um, we might think on a on a surface level. Even if we don't ourselves have physical roots reaching into the ground, there's this larger sense in which we are connected to and intricately part of these places in which we live. Do you think um, that the sort of work from home revolution holds any hope for small towns and rural areas? In that, in that maybe the people who used to feel they had to leave to go after that big city job or big city money now have more options, both just as a result of how the internet's changed us and also especially the, the past year of uh, lockdown and work from home and, and plague avoidance. It is, is that something that you think could revitalize communities that have been dwindling or is it still another form of disconnectedness to have your work based elsewhere and your, and yourself in a different place? I think it could. I myself work from home um, and that's enabled me to make my lifestyle very home centric, which I love. I love the fact that I can divide up my work day so that I get to spend a huge share of my time with my small children, uh, that I can take work breaks and be out in my garden or go on walks through my town and uh, support local businesses and restaurants as a result of being in this place all of the time. Um, that said, I think as you point out, there is still a form of disconnection happening. There's a sense in which the work we do on the computer is disembodied. And so it can perhaps tempt our focus and attention away from the place in which we're living. And so I think that's just something that we have to be aware of. But a lot of Americans are choosing to work from home and that ability that enables them enables them to make decisions about how and where they want to live. And I, I've been very interested to see how many choose to move home or to embrace more multi-generational ways of living in which they're able to care for elderly parents or to live closer to the communities in which they grew up. And um, I would hope that that results in a greater sense of embeddedness and membership in places that really need it. So similar to those lines, you talk a good bit about some of the challenges facing rural towns, and you have this concept of brain drain, which I think we're all pretty familiar with, but you said only 43% of folks stayed in your town, where in some areas of Idaho, maybe it's only 20%, but mm-hmm. just wondering if you can reflect a little on that. This is a, this is a, an issue that we've discussed in other contexts multiple times on the, on the podcast, just sort of the the ability of, I guess, our economic system to, I guess, pull out the folks who have more ambition and and uh, you have a great you, you spend a good bit of time talking about how maybe the the more ambitious or more talented are more likely to leave and I think um, it reads to me like you think maybe they shouldn't but but then again you did so I was wondering you know how do you reflect on all that and is it I guess is it justified for people to leave is it when you think about your own friends and your own in your own situation in the book hollowing out the middle which i talk about a lot the research in that is now probably close to 20 years old and so um not all of the 
data in it would be the the most recent, but the the larger picture that the authors of that book, Patrick Carr and Maria Kafalas, give of brain drain is, I think, really helpful because one of the things they point out in that book is that young people who are extremely talented and bright are oftentimes pushed to leave by their home communities. A lot of the uh, school teachers that they have in high school or before, a lot of their teachers and mentors and parents will be the ones to say, you are you know, too talented for this place. You should go out into the world. And of course, as you guys probably know, one of the things we tend to tell young people who are smart is you'll go far. Um, usually success is seen as a transitory mobile uh, development away from place as opposed to staying in place. And so I definitely think young people should have the choice to move. In many instances, moving away from home will be a healthy thing for them depending on their life circumstances. Maybe it'll be good for them to leave for a while and then eventually come back. We've seen in books like Hollowing Out the Middle and others that oftentimes it's the returners, people who've left, built a successful job, and then choose to bring their social and financial capital home. It's those people who tend to bring a lot of promise to communities who need it. But what I really want to be able to address is that sense or belief that in order to be successful, you should leave, or that staying in place itself is is a less good decision to make in one's life, that in many ways it's, it's a form of settling that's actually um, construed as disappointing or um, a sign of less talent. And so I kind of tried to use my own great-grandfather's story as one of someone who was a sticker, as I put it, someone who stayed in place for his entire life. He literally died in the same probably geographic region of 10 to 20 miles where he was born, born and died, same piece of land. Um, And yet he lived an incredibly wonderful life and enjoyed living in place for his entire life. And so I think there are many good reasons both to stay and to go and to give different young people, different forms of advice. But I've found in my own life that the advice to go, to leave place behind is usually um, the one we most often hear and that is most often touted by our culture. And I wanted to write something that hopefully emphasizes the fact that staying can also be a good decision and and needs to be talked about more as um, something that has a lot of very valuable gifts, both for a community and for the people who choose to stay in it. Absolutely. I, I, I was I was struck by a couple of lines that you wrote where it said, you, you said, uh, our cultural touchstones from Disney movies to pop songs suggest that separation, independence, and departure are inherent to true triumph. That That's another one that's so deep in our understanding that I think we don't really consider it. You know, like you said, people say, oh, you'll go far. But that's just, I don't, I don't know that when people say that they are thinking about distance, mm-hmm. but it certainly means that. And it, and it, and that is what's conveyed. I, I wondered how much of this is, is, is unique to America because of our relatively young status as a nation. I mean, that how many people came across the continent and, and settled it in, in that other sense of settler that you were using. That's, that's not something that the old world really has a good comparison to. I think it makes us different, but it also, 
it does kind of result in that that churn and that hollowing out seemingly being rooted to the american character i wondered if you thought if you thought that that was true and if you thought that maybe it was becoming less true as you know the frontier has been closed and most places are filled in is it is it something that's part of america it is interesting to see that the amount of people moving away from place or moving in general has, I think, gone down in recent years. Um, I argue in my book that at least some of this appears to be because people are not choosing to stick in place, but because they are what we call this. Uh, they might live in a post-industrial town where jobs have all kind of uh, left and they don't have the capital or the community necessary to kind of find themselves another place to be. And so that can be, I think, a very difficult thing for a lot of Americans today. They might be staying in place, but they don't necessarily want to be there and they don't feel like it's the healthiest place for them to be. And um, that that is a struggle for a lot of communities that are um, just experiencing the economic downturn that we've we've seen in, in recent decades. I think that there are, however, a good contingency of young people who, and, and people across generations, who perhaps are starting to think more about living in place as stewards. And I kind of wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal about this, looking at the trends away from um, settling in more urban environments and toward counties with 250,000 residents or less, kind of a return to rural America in many instances of which there's anecdotal evidence to suggest there are young people returning to their home communities. Um, Sarah Smarsh, who wrote the book Heartland, has a podcast called The Homecomers, where she really highlights the work of these people who are seeking to put roots back down in communities that maybe they once left at one time, or maybe they've never left, but they see themselves as living in valuable, worthwhile places, regardless of their importance in the larger world's eyes. And, and they want to do something tangibly to give back to and to love those communities. It strikes me that your description of, of place, which you know is, is really compelling, especially your, your description of the farm and just now your description of maybe a, maybe in the in a prior time, a factory town or something like that, that kids would grow up and sort of know where they fit in the world and who they are and they have expectations. Like I'm going to take over this farm or I'm also going to, I'm going to follow my dad into the factory or something like that. And so it gave kids kind of a sense of heritage and who they were and where they're going and, Maybe I guess what's changed is probably a couple things. One, there's more choices, choices to leave. The, I think the upside of of our contemporary economy is there are a lot more choices of what you can do, where you can go and, and maximize your own abilities and your own skills. And so kids have more choices to maybe do that. And then, and then also you have a, a long conversation about how uh, farm consolidation and large agribusiness sort of uh, squeezing out the, the smaller farmers. I don't know if you want to share some of your thoughts on that, reflect on that a little bit. Well, in the realm of agriculture, we've seen concentration, uh, farm concentration for many decades now. 
I mean, really since the turn of the century and probably before, uh, we've seen less and less farms and larger and larger farms. However, I think you could really identify the 1970s and 1980s as the time in which that logic of getting big or getting out, as Earl Butts, the USDA Secretary of Agriculture once put it, became the mantra used in the world of agriculture. Um, And there was a lot of pressure put on farms during that time to participate in a much more globalized, um, industrialized form of agricultural production rather than supporting more local regional food systems. And as a result, both the what we grew changed and the way in which we grew things changed in America. And um, a town like Emmett, Idaho, once grew both a combination of commodity crops for large industrialized markets and local and regional crops grown for either local and regional agribusinesses or for the sustenance of the people living on the farm itself. It was a whole diverse range of um, what was grown, the inputs going into the farm and the outputs going out from it. And in many ways, what that did is it enabled people to succeed in making a profit and supporting a family on a smaller enterprise. But of course, the more acreage you're coming, the more difficult it becomes to do a more diversified farm operation. And so you see a lot of concentration and homogenization in what's being grown on a never expanding acreage and a lot of hollowing out of these communities as as the farms begin to disappear off the map. What we see happening then also on the agribusiness side is that a lot of the small local and regional agribusinesses that used to serve local farmers have um, disappeared over the decades. And now you have what are referred to as um, uh, big meat, for instance, uh, big producers like Tyson or Smithfield controlling a lot of the slaughterhouses and other various forms of meat production that enable farmers to get their products to market. Um, You see a company like Monsanto, which is now technically owned by Bayer, which is a German company, um, owning most of the germplasm um, and seeds being grown by farmers today, and then also owning the companion chemical used to grow those seeds. And so the picture that we have in agriculture today is just rapidly um, losing diversity and color, you could say. There's just not the same levels of diversity on the farm itself and their ability to get those farms, uh, farm products to market are controlled by an ever lessening amount of players in the industry itself. And so when you look at a year like 2020, um, you see the impact that can have on resilience because if one of those slaughterhouses, for instance, closes down, um, there's all sorts of farmers who are now euthanizing animals that they cannot get to market and have nothing to do with. Um, If the restaurant industry closes down, um, there's farmers who are literally giving away potatoes on the side of the road because they can't get them to the grocery store that might be down the street. Um, And so we've got these various bottlenecks now as a result of what the system looks like that perhaps when everything is going well is incredibly efficient um, but when something goes wrong, the efficiency turns into a brittleness and a fragility that, that I think can be really damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get, get big or get out. Probably Earl Butts' second most infamous statement. 
<laughs> but it's um it's something that it's even outside of farming we see it seemingly everywhere i mean the the consolidation that's been going on since the 90s in business does the same thing and the just in time kind of inventory system that we saw fail us so often in 2020 is way more fragile than you would think considering it's so big and so powerful and it's seemingly a behemoth on our economy it, it only takes that one little thing before you have absurd situations like the one you mentioned mm -hmm. but when it works it is really cheap and that's that's i think what I struggle with is how it's so hard to tell people we need to get back to a system where all this stuff costs more, um, where your, st your standard of living is going to be possibly lower. You know, food's going to cost more. Other, other items are going to cost more, but it's better for us as a people. And I do think it is better for us as a people to live in that more connected way and to do more local things and to benefit workers in just systems rather than say the, the kind of system that prevails in communist China. Mm -hmm. I, it, but it's just a, it's such a tough sell when people are looking at their bank account and saying, yeah, but I can get this for half the price. I, I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who's being harmed by it. it yeah. It's just, I, I, I wonder if you had any thoughts. I mean, I guess part of selling that message is writing books like yours where people can come to understand the bigger picture. But I, I wonder if you had any other ideas about how how can we convince people sometimes that smaller local is better? I am very curious if we change the way we subsidized farming, for instance, uh, and what we grow, how much of an impact that would have. Because the cheapness of one set of products is to some extent um, the result of how taxpayer dollars get you know, um, allocated mm -hmm. to farms. The fact that mm -hmm. um, corn and soybeans and many of many of the ingredients that go into cheaper foods are actually cheap because of the fact that they're not solely because, but partially because of the fact that they're subsidized. Whereas also, um, there is currently still a demand for organic products that's not being fully met, which also means that they're more expensive. And so there's a question of whether as we continue to support organic agriculture, um, that might actually have an impact on price and, and make it a little more reasonable, at least for the for the average consumer. Um, but then also, of course, it's just the fact that in America, we pay less of our budget. We put less of our budget toward food than any other um, country in the developed world. We mm -hmm. uh, spend less on our, far less on our food than most other countries in Europe and elsewhere. And so there's a question of how much should we spend on food? What, what it, how do we allocate worth to what we put in our bodies? And um, are we sometimes paying the bill for our food farther on down the line in a way that makes it look cheap at the moment, but actually in the long term is costing us more? So for instance, in our healthcare bills, um, there's definitely an argument to be made that issues of obesity and heart disease and other issues are directly correlated to the cheap foods that we eat. And so if you look at the larger costs that those conditions can create long term, then I think you could make the argument that our cheapness is actually not cheap. Um, but as you know, it's, it's very hard for a lot of Americans to look at their budgets and say, I'm going to spend twice as much on food as I do right now. That's a hard yeah. sell. And so 
um, ways in which we can make it more accessible, in which we can argue for the fact that this makes you a healthier human being, which hopefully will impact your budget in other ways. Um, and, and then also arguing for it from a communal perspective, I think, and the health of the land that you're surrounded by um, are some things we could perhaps do better. Those are some great points. And to me, it actually is also an argument for we probably don't need, probably shouldn't have government intervention really at all, because I mean, these are, these are government interventions done for political reasons, the subsidizing of sugar through quotas, you know, the subsidizing of corn, as you say, through farm subsidies, as well as, you know, ethanol, I think is a clear subsidy for, for corn uh, growers. And it's kind of like, Later on in the book, you, you do say that you you wouldn't mind using government funds, these that, uh, that are usually given to larger farms, reallocated to rectify some of the hollowing out. But doesn't that really just, again, pick winners and losers and probably puts us in a similar situation? I don't know. I'd love, I'd love to hear you reflect on some of your policy solutions. And I know you were, you're critical of the, what I think you labeled the libertarian mindset about, you know, what difference does it make if there are, if there is major consolidation. So a couple of those points, I'd love to hear you share your thoughts on, you know, number one, is it really going to help for, for the government to move money somewhere else? Cause doesn't that just create some of the similar problems? And then number two, what is it about consolidation? that's so bad. I mean, I think that uh, you had a, you had a good conversation about dairy farmers and I think dairy is an example of, just there's just too many dairy farmers there's just too much production and that's really the problem and um anyway can you share some of your thoughts on that love to hear it yeah for sure well maybe i'll do the second one first because the dairy is actually a really interesting example of how um consolidation less dairies doesn't fix the problem because right now in idaho throughout the states like wisconsin that have had a very strong contingency of, of dairy farmers you have less than half in some instances of the dairies that you used to have, but they're producing as much or more milk than ever because as, as we noted, as with other things that have grown exceedingly concentrated, they're extremely efficient. That doesn't mean that the dairies themselves are necessarily operating in the healthiest way possible. It doesn't mean that the animals are always as healthy as they could be, but they're producing a lot of milk. Um, and so overproduction has been a massive problem throughout the dairy sector for multiple years now, even though you have thousands of dairies going bankrupt and dropping out every year. And as those dairies drop out, the ones that remain buy more cows and more equipment and produce more than ever. So overproduction is a problem, but I don't think that it's a problem that necessarily gets fixed by pushing out more players or by concentrating the dairy industry. Um, as to questions of, of how the government should be involved, if at all, I am always so hesitant to actually posit solutions because I think the problems are oftentimes much more complex than any one policy could or should fix. And as a person who is conservative minded, I believe that we should have modesty in the way that we approach these, these huge problems. All of that said, we have an extremely aged 
and aging population in the realm of agriculture. And many of the young people who would be interested in taking their place on the farm, who would be interested in starting up their own farms, cannot possibly afford the land that would be necessary to get those farms going. Um, land prices, as well as issues of um, market availability and processing and distributing um, difficulties are kind of the three things that make it so that I think being a farm entrepreneur these days is hard in a way that it hasn't been before. And um, I struggle to see in, in the reading and research I've done how you manage to get young people started on the farm without some form of support. And um, it seems to me as if seeing as the government has in many ways um, funded and created the dilemma we're currently in with an aging uh, group of farmers with no one to replace them, that perhaps they could be a part of the solution. And in many instances, I think there are efforts to try and be part of the solution in programs being built up that are aimed at getting young people and people of color back on the land to uh, demographics who were deeply hurt by USDA policies over the years. Um, mm -hmm. And so could there also be unintended consequences of that? Definitely. There were unintended consequences to all the policies that kind of got us to this point. But once again, with the cost of land, I don't see how you begin to be able to get young people and farm entrepreneurs back onto the land without some form of assistance and private assistance would be wonderful. And I think we also should talk about how to support, support farmers through um, private aid and, and philanthropic efforts as well. I think that makes sense. And modesty is so important in, in government policies. And I think too many people don't consider trade-offs. That's, there was a, point we discussed way back when, when we were reading Hayek about how the problem with the government running something is if they, if you make everybody do the same thing, then you have to get it right. When everybody can do their own thing, an individual failure doesn't bring down the whole system. But that's, um, that's definitely something I think if there were to be a change in farm policy, I would hope that it would be with more humility, more attention to the local variations, especially in something that is local, like like land and agriculture. I, I kind of, I hear what you're saying and I hear what Corey's saying and I'm kind of caught in between too. I don't like, my, my first impulse is never, well, let's let Washington fix it. Mm -hmm. But when Washington's the one that screwed it up in the first place, I mean, sometimes, sometimes the thumb has to go back on the scale to just to tilt it back to even. Yeah. And that's, that's a question I've, I've talked a lot too with, um, Chuck Marone over at Strong Towns, uh, for instance, we've talked a lot about how we would so much prefer for local associations uh, and communities to be empowered to do this sort of work themselves. But if and where so many of those local support systems have been completely decimated, how do you just even get back to ground zero to try and help those communities build back up that sort of associational strength? How do you begin to try and reinvigorate what's what's been lost? And um, it doesn't seem like there are easy, simple solutions or answers, and I cannot pretend to have them. <laughs> but mm -hmm. asking that question has been on the forefront of my mind as I thought about this book, for sure. 
Yeah, and it's uh, that's one thing we've discussed on here before. But like when you described the the early days of the part of Idaho that you grew up in, it was of people going out to unbroken soil and, and untamed wilderness and making it a home through individual effort, through collective effort, helping each other out. It was, I mean, there was government assistance in the sense of there was a Homestead Act and that, that brought farmers into the West. But once you got there, you had to do it yourself or, or get your neighbors or your family to help you. I think that's what makes the community is that responsibility for getting something done. And it concerns me that we saw so many, like, I, I think of uh, George W. Bush's faith-based initiatives, you know, getting, but it was sold as a way to empower local organizations, even those who were churches and were otherwise excluded from government uh, programs. But if it's just running the money through a church as opposed to a bank, is it building anything or is it just transmitting the same policy of the same outside hand? And it's it's troubling to think that way because then if that's true, if the only way that we can build communities is to have them build themselves, then it would seem like we're caught in a trap because we're not going to just pull back everything and say, do it yourself. But I wonder is I wonder if you think there is any sort of middle way for that of not going back to the level of government we had in 1800, but still pulling back enough of Washington's control and and money and saying, okay, folks, we, we did this before. We can do it again. Let's, let's rebuild. Yeah. Well, one thing that we also wouldn't have had them at least then, at least not to the same extent, it, it would seem would be the agribusiness monopolization and, and, mm-hmm. and other forms of big business monopolization that we have now. And I, I know yeah. conservatives oftentimes with, with good reason critique big government and, I, and I'm right there with them. I just also think that we have to be wary of the fact that big business can have many of the same um, deleterious impacts on community that, that mm-hmm. big government can have. And so pulling away one and... Um, it seems like it can also uh, ignore the the perils of the other, and like I said, I I don't have a good answer for, for these questions. <laughs> no, but I think that's the right question, though. I, th- I I I agree. I think we've we've talked about that a few times on this show. If it's if it's just a different outside force controlling you, it it might not be the government, but it's still it's still not freedom. Well, so, so then the other alternative is to let the market operate. And in this case, it probably means more growth, which I was really intrigued. And I'd love to hear you talk about your views on growth, because on the one hand, on the one hand, the, the book feels to me like sort of a it's, a it's a requiem for a certain way of life. And the kids are leaving and there's a there's a lot to be concerned about, and maybe disappointed. But then on the other hand, Boise's changing. California's changing. Utah's changing, and it's uh, in many ways, like you said, Boise's burgeoning population is a blessing to an area that might otherwise continue to lose jobs and youth. And I, I, I highlighted that because I was like, yeah, exactly. That's that isn't that what we want. I mean, that's kind of the market solution. But, but I think I, I really sense that uh, that you were also critical of that and maybe not, maybe disapproved of it. So anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I don't disapprove of, of growth in the area at all. I'm 
very excited about what it brings to Idaho and the ways in which it is creating a, a more diverse population, a population of people who are choosing to move to Idaho because they love it and they love its land and its people and its communities. What I am critical of in the book is the way in which um, property developers and others are responding to that growth. And I think they could and should grow in a much more responsible way. If you have kind of lived in an area that's experiencing or has experienced a suburban boom, um, you can see the way in which uh, property development just rampantly sorry, rapidly uh, transforms the landscape in front of your eyes and does so in a way that really supports low-density suburban sprawl, um, massive parking lots, strip malls, etc., which oftentimes have a huge cost to community down the road, as opposed to the way that we used to design neighborhoods, which was um, mixed-use development, high-density building. Um, as Addison Del Mastro's written in his wonderful substack, which people should check out, um, a lot of small towns that were created prior to the turn of the century were built like tiny cities. They had the same levels of density and walkability. They were mixed-use. And what that did is it meant that their footprint on the land was relatively small and enabled people to preserve a lot of the surrounding countryside and natural environment. What we have today is very, very different. And as my mayor out here in Northern Virginia likes to say, um, once you pave over farmland, it's really hard to get it back. So the reason I'm critical in the book is that I think we must consider more thoughtfully how we develop this land because it will be hard to get it back. And according to some estimates, um, the farmland where I grew up could lose as much as 60 or more percent of its farmland in the next decade to this suburban boom that's happening. And I just think we could do a better job of developing land in a way that respects the resources and the beauty and the and the farms that exist in that community. I, I think that that's right. And it made me think of some of the themes like that in your book, sort of point to, I, th I think, a middle way on environmental questions where it seems like what you hear politicians say is either such an extreme libertarian view of I mean, fewer regulations, pave everything, whatever the market will bear, highest and best use, which usually means uh, a big building. But then so many on the other side don't want to build anything, don't want to do anything but windmills and solar panels, which are fine, but there's not enough of them to power the world. Not concerned with jobs, not you know, just more about stopping. And they're both they're both sort of reactionary in, in reactionary left and reactionary right. I think the kind of stuff you're talking about here is is a sort of conservation that's conservative in a temperamental sense if not a political sense, the idea of living in harmony with nature to the extent it's possible in this modern world of preserve, you know, conserving and, and stewardship of nature and its resources, which doesn't mean we can't build anything, doesn't mean we can't grow, but it does mean that we should think about the trade-offs of our actions before we do something like pave over a farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and um, one thing that I 
discovered as I was working on my book is that oftentimes the farming that makes sense for the health of local soil is also good for the climate. Um, farmers who are working to build kind of similar to this this form of um, the built environment and, and development that I'm talking about, something that's dense in the sense that um, you're doing a lot on a small smaller acreage and a mixed use in the sense that you have, for instance, cattle grazing land that uh, has a lot of, of different sorts of um, grasses and, and legumes on it. Um, that actually is storing carbon in a way that's been proven to be much better for the environment than uh, more modern forms of agriculture, which was really kind of fun to look at and tease out the implications of that. Um, many people are calling it carbon farming because you're um, storing carbon in the soil. But it's it's funny if you just break it down, carbon farming is just good, good farming um, done in a more classical way that that makes sure that animals and crops and all of this are being reintegrated together in a way that we've kind of lost in more modern times. Good stuff. Gracie, you've been an amazing guest. We're uh, we're a little over time and we've loved the conversation. Thank you. Any any last words you have for us? Oh, it was a delight to get to talk to you guys. Thanks for asking such wonderful questions. Uh, whenever it comes to trying to posit solutions, I I show my uh, lack of knowledge and all I have left to learn. Um, but as hopefully a, a good conservative thinker, I, I try to be very cautious about proposing solutions because I know that there are no perfect solutions for fallen humans in a fallen world, but we're hopefully, hopefully making things better as we, as we seek to live humbly and modestly in our places. Right. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Perfectly said. And could be the theme of this podcast. So anyway, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. That's Gracie Olmstead. Catch us next time.